0: around the campfire and let me tell you a story. Today we're going to be talking about the urban legend of poisoned Halloween candy. Should you be dumping your kids Snickers and Smarties when they come home? Was your parents taking your pillowcases to be sifted through by police or x-rayed by a hospital really necessary? How did Americans become convinced that there might be razor blades or arsenic in their Hershey bars? And is there any truth to this lasting legend Of real horror hiding at the bottom of your plastic pumpkin buckets? Halloween as we know it today is the Frankenstein child of multiple holidays combined. The first is the ancient festival of Samhain. The Celts, native to Ireland and the UK, celebrated their new year on November 1st. Because this was the beginning of winter, and winter was associated with death, The Celts would dress up in animal costumes and light bonfires to scare away ghosts that they believed could be walking the earth that night. There was also a heavy emphasis on fortune-telling as well. When the Romans conquered the Celts, they added two of their own holidays to the mix, Feralia, the October holiday honoring the dead, and Pomona, a holiday honoring the goddess of fruit, which is likely where the tradition of bobbing for apples comes from. In 1000 AD, the Catholic Church moved their holiday of All Saints Day, or All Souls Day, to November 2nd, in a push to get the Celts on board. People celebrating this holiday would dress up as demons, saints, and angels. The night before All Saints Day was called All Hallows' Eve, from the Middle English spelling of the word, and this eventually morphed into the name Halloween. In what would become the United States, the strict New England colonies kept Halloween out for a long time, despite the fact that Salem, Massachusetts may be considered the unofficial capital of the holiday today. Harvest festivals were popular, though, and some Halloween celebrating did make it across the pond, with a heavy emphasis on the trick portion, with ghost stories and mischief. Irish immigrants fleeing the Great Potato Famine, helped popularize a version of Halloween with costumes and trick-or-treating, and they brought back the fortune-telling aspects as well. In the later part of the 1800s, there was a big push to make the holiday more family-friendly, and some of the more witchy elements were removed and replaced with big community parties. After World War II, with the baby boom and the move to the suburbs, Halloween, and especially trick-or-treating, became much more popular with children. Communities also embraced making the holiday mainstream with the hope of countering pranks by teenagers. The idea of poisoned Halloween candy actually falls under a fairly common category of urban legend about contaminated food. During the Industrial Revolution, food production left the farm in the neighborhood and went to faraway factories hidden from the consumer. Rumors of doctors treating kids with poison every day from candy Spread across Europe and the United States, so much so that the U.S. Bureau of Chemistry took action in the 1890s and 1900s to test thousands of candy samples. And they did find some traces of copper from pots and cheap dyes and syrups being substituted, but no poison. Causes of death were hard to determine at this time, so the experts believed that these candy death rumors were simply misattributed. The rumors about Halloween candy in particular started to pop up in the 1950s and 60s. Joel Best, University of Wisconsin professor of sociology and criminal justice, and the nation's top researcher on this legend, not that there's much competition, said, quote, The older version of this that I know were stories in the early 1950s about people heating pennies on skillets and then dumping the hot pennies in the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters. This morphed by the 1960s into poison and pins and candy bars. Unquote. In the 1960s and 70s, the idea of good, respectable, <clears throat> white neighborhoods being invaded by African Americans and those untrustworthy career women added fuel to the fire of nefarious neighbors preying on children. The media helped spread these rumors. A 1985 poll by ABC News and the Washington Post. Found that sixty percent of parents were afraid of candy tampering. In nineteen, also in nineteen eighty-five, advice columnist Dear Abby wrote, "Somebody's child will become violently ill or die after eating poisoned candy or an apple containing a razor blade." And in nineteen ninety-five, Ask Ann Landers echoed the claim. Quote, in recent years, there have been reports of people with twisted minds putting razor blades and poison in taffy apples and Halloween candy. It is no longer safe to let your child eat treats that come from strangers. Unquote. Alternative events to trick-or-treating, like trunk-or-treats in church parking lots, uh, malls or police or fire stations, began to develop. And homemade treats like popcorn balls and caramel apples were discouraged. Even in the last several years, the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission and the St. Louis DEA even warned parents about accidental or purposeful distribution of THC-laced candies being given to children. There have been several high-profile tampering incidents and candy poisonings that have contributed to this legend, and we're going to be briefly discussing five of them today. Throughout history... There have been several large cases of mass accidental poisoning through dangerous and unregulated production of food. One significant case that affected candy happened the day before Halloween in 1858 in Bradford, England. There was a local candy maker named William Hardacre, who was nicknamed Humbug Billy, but this was no Scrooge-style insult. Humbugs were actually one of his most popular candies, and a traditional sweet in the UK, Ireland, South Africa, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. And I've never tried one, but they're hard, generally peppermint-flavored, and have a base of gum and sugar. At this time in history, it was fairly common for food to be adulterated, Across history, it's been fairly common for food to be adulterated or have some of its more expensive ingredients swapped out for cheaper alternatives. Cheese could be colored with lead in the Victorian era, and many foods in ancient times were sweetened with it. Milk in the 1800s New York turned deadly when whitened with plaster and rotten eggs, coming from cows fed with distillery swill. Even in recent decades, there have been illegal cases of adulteration, Transformer oil in South Africa has been used as cooking oil even today. In the 1980s, olive oil in Spain was doctored with industrial colza oil and killed over 600 people. Milk in China and India has been found with deadly chemicals even into the early 2000s. And in 2013, there was even a scandal in Europe when it was discovered that horse meat was being sold as beef. Sugar in the 1800s was particularly expensive in Britain, as the tropical plants shockingly couldn't be grown in Britain's cool, wet climate. Although it first popped up among elites in the 1300s, it didn't become widely available until Britain set up sugar plantations in the West Indies in the 1600s and 1700s, although prices for this white gold was still high, especially because of a large tax placed on it. In order to save money, many food manufacturers would mix sugar with other materials, such as powdered gypsum, also known as plaster of Paris, by which I literally mean the building material plaster, like what you put on your ceiling. It could also be mixed with limestone and lime sulfate, but gypsum was called daff to help hide the fact that it was literally what you cover your house in. Eating it is harmless, although I wouldn't recommend it. Humbug Billy, would purchase his supplies from a local man named Joseph Neal, and he often used daff to replace some sugar in the candy. On this day, Neal sent a man named James Archer, who was just a random person staying at his house, to buy gypsum from pharmacist Charles Hodgson. Hodgson was sick that day, and initially told Archer that he would have to come back another time, but reportedly Archer insisted that he needed it. So Hodgson told his young apprentice, William Goddard, to get the gypsum out of the corner of the attic. Neither man had a strong familiarity with the materials, and instead of the gypsum, Goddard sold Archer 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide, another white powder which is odorless and tasteless, in basically the reverse of the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where young George, the pharmacy assistant, stops the drunk pharmacist from giving out deadly poison instead of medicine. In Goddard's defense, it looked a lot like gypsum or sugar, and they were stored together at the pharmacy. Against his defense, they might have wanted to invest in some labels. There had been a growing concern about poisoning deaths in Britain before the Bradford incident. The 1851 Arsenic Act had already passed, which required records of the sale of the material to be kept, and called for non-medicinal arsenic to be colored with dye to stand out from other white powders. But clearly, this policy was not in use at this pharmacy. When Neil got the powder from Archer, his employee, James Appleton, made forty pounds of humbugs by using forty pounds of sugar, twelve pounds of arsenic trioxide, four pounds of gum, and peppermint oil. Appleton was an experienced candy maker and noticed that something was off with this batch of candy and that they were darker than usual. Humbug Billy also noticed the discoloration and only accepted them after a discount. Appleton and Humbug Billy both tried the candy, and they were sick for the next few days with vomiting and pain in their limbs, but it wasn't until later that they realized it was connected to the humbugs. That night before Halloween, Humbug Billy sold 5 pounds, or 2.3 kilograms, of the deadly humbug candies. The first two people who died were thought to have caught cholera, a common intestinal illness of the time. But as 21 people died within the next several days, and 200 became severely ill with intestinal distress and pain, the authorities were led back to Humbug Billy, and then to the suppliers. Several doctors analyzed the humbugs and the patients, and it's estimated that each candy had enough arsenic to kill two people, and I'm pleasantly surprised that they could figure this out because I thought that doctors at the time just put leeches on you and drilled holes in your skull. But they found the total amount of arsenic in the five pounds of candy handed out that day could have killed 2,000 people. Police tracked down the people who had bought the sweets and offered treatment for those who had already eaten them, possibly preventing hundreds of deaths. Goddard, the assistant, was arrested first, and then the pharmacist Hodgson, and then the supplier, Joseph Neal. The three of them were all charged with manslaughter by gross neglect. Eventually, all three men were acquitted in December of that year. But there were long-term effects from this tragedy besides the loss of life. The Pharmacy Act of 1868 was passed, which controlled the distribution of poison and created a National Poison Register. It also required record-keeping of the purchasers and the pharmacists. The act led to a major drop in deaths, especially for children under five. And the act also kind of helped women gain the right to practice pharmacy by listing over 200 women on the pharmacy registry, mostly the wives or daughters of male pharmacists. The first female pharmacist in England, Alice Vickery, officially qualified in 1873, and British Prime Minister W.E. Gladstone also took action to prevent the adulteration of food with materials like gypsum plaster in the wake of this incident. The 1860 adulteration of food and drink Bill passed in the aftermath of the poisoning. Despite this giant case, the myth of poisoned Halloween candy didn't really take root in England the same way that it did in the United States. To get a better idea of how it took place here, we'll have to jump across the pond and explore a few more cases. On Halloween night of 1964, on Long Island, New York, several older children got something in their candy buckets even worse than those tiny little rolls of black licorice. Elise and Irene Drucker were trick-or-treating as hobos when they came to the house of 47-year-old housewife Helen Feel. She asked the young teens, Aren't you a little old to be trick-or-treating? And then dropped something wrapped in napkins into their bucket. When the girls returned home, their mother dumped out the buckets and sorted through the halls. When she arrived at the napkins, she found that they had small cyanide-filled ant traps labeled poison. The family called the police, and they spread the word around town to turn their candy into church leaders and volunteers who were combing it for poison. 19 ant traps were found total that night, and authorities were led back to Helen Field. She told police that it had just been a joke. Really funny and that she was upset because she thought the teens were too old to trick-or-treat, despite the fact that her own 15- and 16-year-old sons were out doing the same thing. Theo received a mental evaluation and was charged with child endangerment. She received a two-year suspended sentence, and the nation kept up the idea of sifting through children's candy. Another case that's often brought up as adding to the candy-tampering panic didn't involve candy at all, but Tylenol. On September 29, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman took a Tylenol to soothe a sore throat and died suddenly before 7 a.m. That same day, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janis was rushed to the hospital in Chicago, Illinois for what seemed to be a heart attack after taking Tylenol from a completely different bottle. He died that same day. His 25-year-old brother Stanley and 19-year-old sister-in-law Teresa went to Adam's house after his death, and each of them took a Tylenol from the same bottle that Adam had used earlier to help their headaches. They both died soon after. Three more people in the Chicago area suffered the same fate in the next several days. 31-year-old Mary McFarland, 35-year-old Paula Prince, and 27-year-old Mary Reiner. The fact that three of the seven victims were named Mary was one connection, but the more important connection the police put together, was that they had all taken Tylenol. Their bottles were collected and tested, and cyanide, a deadly poison, was found in all of them. In a very apocalyptic style but effective plan, authorities patrolled the streets of the city with loudspeakers warning people not to take Tylenol, and a media storm soon made sure that everyone knew about the potentially deadly substance in their medicine cabinets. Chicago-area residents turned over any bottles they had at home and three more poisoned ones were found on store shelves, not yet sold. Police dove into figuring out who had masterminded the murder of seven people and the attempted murder of at least three more. The poisoned bottles had all been found in Chicago, but they had come from different manufacturers, so they could not have been contaminated during their production. It became clear to police that the bottles had been removed from store shelves, poisoned, and then put back over several weeks. Johnson and Johnson, the manufacturer of Tylenol, issued a nationwide recall of the 31 million bottles of the drug currently in households and stores, costing them today's equivalent of over 265 million dollars. They also offered an exchange program of the capsule form of the drug that had been poisoned with a tablet version that was harder to tamper with, and they issued warnings to medical providers. Offered a reward for information about the crime and they stopped all production and advertising of tylenol johnson and johnson was widely praised for its response there were several possible suspects identified by police lori dan an illinois murderer was considered as a suspect in 1988 she stole arsenic and mixed it into juice boxes and milk and delivered the poisoned drink to former babysitting clients and others But the poison was diluted and the drinks tasted foul, so no one was killed. She later entered a school and killed one student, wounded four others, and then held a family hostage before taking her own life. Her use of the same poison and her location in the Chicago area was suspicious, but she was eventually cleared. A man named Roger Arnold was also investigated as a suspect, and media attention eventually led to a mental breakdown in 1983. Arnold murdered a man, John Stanisha, outside of a bar because he mistook him for the bar owner, Marty Sinclair, who Arnold thought had informed police on him. Stanisha did not know Arnold at all. He was just an unlucky doppelganger. Police cleared Arnold, but even if he was guilty, he was still sentenced to 30 years in prison for Stanisha's murder, and he died in 2008. The most prominent suspect was James William Lewis. Immediately after the murders, he sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson requesting $1 million to stop the poisonings. His fingerprints were found in the envelope, but he was living in New York City, so it was difficult to link him with the crime. As recently as 2009, the Department of Justice stated that they believed he was responsible, but they were unable to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. He was convicted, though, of extortion, and he served 13 years in prison. In 2011, the FBI requested DNA from Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, in connection with the case, as his first four attacks happened around Chicago, where his parents had a house. But for now, no one has been charged with the Tylenol murders. There were hundreds of copycat attacks that happened in the 1980s, and tampering scares became etched in the American conscience. The U.S. government made product tampering a federal crime, with the Tylenol Bill of 1983, and drug and food companies scrambled to create tamper-proof packaging like seals and security rings. The capsule form of drugs were also largely phased out because they could easily be opened, emptied, and refilled. Instead, Johnson & Johnson created the Caplet, which was still gel-coated for easy swallowing, but were much harder to tamper with. In the 1980s, there was another candy-tampering crime in Japan, A group referred to the mystery man with 21 faces kidnapped the president of candy company, Azaki Glyco, from his bathtub in his Osaka home, but he escaped. Then there were two cases of arson at the Glyco factory with a promise to stop if $1.3 million was handed over, but the man they kidnapped to collect the drop-off was just arrested and later freed. Then they sent a letter to his company threatening to poison their candy with cyanide unless they received a ransom of $4 million. The company's sales were instantly halved, and they had to lay off 1,000 workers. Stores pulled the candy from their shelves, but there was no poison found. The group that had sent the threat eventually sent a follow-up letter saying they were, quote, bored with this affair, unquote, had destroyed the tainted products, and were moving to Europe for the summer. Then, months later, a second set of letters threatened candy manufacturer Morinaga and company that 20 boxes of their candy had been poisoned and scattered across central Japan, and if they didn't receive $410,000, 30 more would be distributed with no more warning. The letters were addressed to, quote, all mothers in the country, and stated that the candy would, quote, now taste a bit bitter since we've added a special seasoning of sodium cyanide, unquote. And was signed, The Mystery Man with 21 Faces, or The Monster with 21 Faces, which was a reference to a children's mystery television show and book series of the same name. When the candy was pulled and examined this time, several packages of cookies and sweets were found with typewritten labels, warning that they were poisoned. And they were. Six items were contaminated with cyanide, although only one had enough to be deadly. Nobody was harmed by this, but the criminals were never caught. But by far the most notorious case of Halloween candy tampering is the case of the man who killed Halloween. Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19, 1944. He married a woman whose name I don't know how to pronounce, but I'm going to go with Danine, And they had two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, 1966 and 1969. The family lived in Deer Park, Texas, where Ronald worked as an optician and a Baptist deacon. He also sang in the church choir, which I also did, so we're not all murderers, and he ran the town's bus program. Everything seemed to be normal with the family until Halloween night, 1974. O'Brien took 8-year-old Timothy and 5-year-old Elizabeth trick-or-treating with some neighbors after a group dinner. At one point in the night, they came to a house that didn't answer the door. The kids ran ahead while O'Brien lagged behind. When he returned, he told his kids that the house had actually opened up and had given him five giant pixie sticks, which, for those who don't know, are giant plastic tubes of sugar. He gave one to each of his kids, one to two neighbor's kids, and one more to a boy he recognized from his church. When they went to the neighbor's house after trick-or-treating, O'Brien, leaped over the table, unquote, to stop a friend's child from eating Timothy's pixie stick. When the family returned home, O'Brien offered Timothy the pixie stick and helped him open it because it was oddly sealed with a staple. Timothy complained about the bitter taste immediately and drank some Kool-Aid to wash it down, but he almost instantly started to vomit and convulse. He died on the way to the hospital, and the community went into a panic. Families dumped their kids' candy by the pillowcase at the police station, Timothy's family wasn't initially considered suspicious until potassium cyanide was found in his system after the coroner smelled the telltale scent of almonds that comes from the poison. The authorities tracked down three of the four uneaten pixie sticks, but a newspaper describes what happened when they called the final family as, quote, When police got to Whitney Parker's house, his parents almost died on the spot because they couldn't find the pixie stick. They found him holding it asleep. His little fingers were not strong enough to get the staples out. It just sends shivers down your spine. Each of the pixie sticks had two inches replaced with cyanide and could kill two to four adults. Police decided to question O'Brien about the deadly Halloween night. He told authorities he couldn't remember which house the pixie sticks came from. But the O'Briens had only been to two streets before they stopped trick-or-treating because of rain and none of those houses were giving out pixie sticks that night. Police forced O'Brien to show them which house had reported the cracked open the door, stuck out a hairy arm, and handed him the candy. When the police looked into who owned the house that he identified, they found out it wasn't a Halloween hater hiding from the neighborhood children with the lights off, but an air traffic controller named Courtney Melvin. There were almost 200 witnesses who confirmed that he was at the airport until late into Halloween night. The police were now highly suspicious of O'Brien, but were still looking for a motive for him to murder his own son. But as they dug deeper into his financial situation, the clues came together. O'Brien had held 21 jobs in the past 10 years, and he was today's equivalent of $520,000 in debt. He was on the verge of losing his car, his house, and his job as an optician, where he was suspected of stealing. Perhaps the most damning evidence was that O'Brien had taken out today's equivalent of over $50,000 in life insurance on both of his children in January of that year, and an extra $20,000 policy on both just days before Halloween. The morning of November 1st, he called an insurance company about collecting the payment for Timothy's life. He had also gone to a chemical supply store and asked about buying cyanide, but was told the smallest amount available was five pounds, and he left. They never found out where he did acquire the cyanide that he actually used for the crime, but police did find O'Brien's pocket knife with traces of sugar in plastic packaging in his home, so honestly this man couldn't have been more suspicious. O'Brien was arrested on November 5th and charged with one count of murder and four counts of attempted murder, to which he shockingly pled not guilty. His trial began in May of that same year, and unluckily for O'Brien, a parade of his friends, co-workers, a chemist, a chemical salesperson, all testified that he had been asking questions about cyanide, how much would be needed to kill someone, and where to buy it, for years leading up to Timothy's death. To which I'd like to add, if your friend is asking a lot of questions about poison, and they're not an author, chemist, police officer, exterminator, or podcast host, maybe give the police a quick call. O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law both testified that O'Brien had talked to them at Timothy's funeral about how he was going to take a vacation with the life insurance money. His wife, Daneen, testified against him as well. The prosecutor, Assistant DA Mike Hinton, said, quote, We were all shocked that someone would kill their own son, their own flesh and blood, for a lousy $40,000 life insurance policy, unquote. the The Candyman, as O'Brien came to be called, used the urban legend of the crazy stranger slipping razor blades and deadly substances into candy as his defense. But the jury was unconvinced, taking only 46 minutes to find him guilty and just over an hour to sentence him to death. Welcome to Texas. After his conviction... His wife divorced him and remarried, and her second husband adopted surviving daughter Elizabeth. She maintained that she had no knowledge of the life insurance policies against her children and never cashed them, calling it blood money. Prosecutor Hinton said of O'Brien, This is the man who killed Halloween. As O'Brien awaited his execution in prison, he was described as absolutely friendless by the prison chaplain. His fellow inmates hated him so much for killing a child that they actually tried to hold a demonstration against him on the day of his execution. O'Brien's execution date was rescheduled three times until the 8th anniversary of the crime Halloween 1982, when the judge was apparently so fed up with the delays that he said he would drive O'Brien to the death chamber himself. O'Brien attempted to appeal a fourth time, but it was rejected. On March 31st, 1984, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection just after midnight. He left his belongings to a fellow death row inmate accused of killing his own mother, and O'Brien offered his eyes for scientific research or donation. He maintained his innocence until his death, but this didn't stop over 300 people from waiting outside the prison for the news, throwing candy at anti-death penalty protesters. When it was announced that O'Brien was finally gone, the waiting crowd had a morbid chant to shout out, trick or treat. So, should you be scared of Halloween candy? Despite these several scary incidents, the research says no. Joel Best, that candy legend expert from earlier, said, quote, I've done the research and I can't find any evidence that any child has been killed or seriously hurt by any candy picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. My view is this is overblown. You can't prove a negative, but it seems unlikely. Unquote. Best also found about two cases a year of sharp objects and candy being reported, but up to 95% were hoaxes. None of them have been deadly, with the most severe injury being a dozen stitches. Why does Best believe this rumor holds on? He said, quote, we live in a world of apocalyptic scenarios. Here we are, we have safer, healthier, longer lives than people in any other point in history, and we're constantly imagining that this could all fall apart in a nanosecond. So I think that what happens is we translate a lot of our anxiety into fears about our children. Unquote. He also offered this comfort to parents. Quote, It's the greatest thing in the world you can be afraid of, because you only have to be afraid of it for one night a year. You know, maybe there's somebody down the block who's so crazy that he poisons little children at random, but he only does it one night a year, throughout the rest of the year. He's normal." Unquote. If you really want to be safe on Halloween, officials recommend being extra careful of any passing cars. If you're driving, keeping it slow on residential streets, Staying visible with flashlights and groups. And if you're still concerned about that candy, make sure the packaging is sealed and not punctured or torn. Throw in any handmade goodies, and also the floss because nobody wants that. And if you're listening to this in 2020, wear a mask and try to keep the kids to a couple handfuls of candy the night of, because the biggest Halloween threat is likely a stomachache. interested in starting your own podcast? Check out Buzzsprout. I use Buzzsprout to host this show and get listed on all the major podcasting apps, find sponsors, and track statistics. If you sign up with my link, you get a $20 Amazon gift card when you upgrade to a paid plan. Let me know if you make a podcast. I'd love to follow your show. Fiverr is the perfect place to find high-quality freelancers for any budget who do everything from writing and translation design, video editing, tutoring, programming, genealogy, souvenir collecting, and a ton of other incredible services. Check it out using the link in the description to tell them that I sent you. Thank you for supporting the show.